In a 2018 article, librarian Fabazi Itar coined the phrase vocational awe to describe the set of ideas, values, and assumptions librarians have about themselves and the profession that result in beliefs that libraries as institutions are inherently good and sacred, and therefore beyond critique. What makes Itar's article so important is that it is an open and honest vocalization of something that many librarians know, but don't necessarily want to say out loud, which is that what we do matters, but that doesn't automatically make it good or sacred. Sure, we've accrued student loan debt in order to get the piece of paper that says we're librarians, but lots of people have done the same thing for other careers. But there is a mythology that has been created around librarians, especially female librarians, which librarians and library patrons have internalized to a point of fetishization. What's she look like? Kind of like a librarian. Your kind of librarian or my kind of librarian? We are seen as strict and very serious. We live for books, protecting books, reading books, sniffing books. We keep a sharp eye on everyone who comes into our libraries, and we make sure that our patrons are respectful of this temple of books. Our position as librarians has an implied authority and expertise behind it, and depending on how long we've been at our jobs, we appear to just kind of have all the answers to any question we're asked, and if we don't immediately know the answer, we can immediately find it. Add in the trope of the naughty librarian who wants to have a stern conversation about your overdue books, and you end up with sibylline oracles in pencil skirts and cat-eye glasses who rule their libraries with a stern but sexy iron fist. All of this can create a power imbalance in which the librarian and their patron believes that the librarian knows what's best. But believing our own hype can lead us into a trap of seeing our work as sacred and beyond critique. We dismiss the notion of biased behavior because that's not compatible with the gravitas that we're supposed to display. We will also assume that other librarians are following the same venerable charge, and eventually we will end up at a place where librarians and researchers accept things like Beale's List without question. Because how could an experienced academic librarian like Jeffrey Beale possibly be wrong or have ulterior motives if librarianship is a sacred calling? And I am burdened with glorious purpose. This idea of a sacred calling can often be heard from the white female librarians that take up a good majority of this particular space. They, and by they I mean we, have been a part of the American library landscape for almost 150 years and remain the dominant demographic when it comes to library workers. As of 2020, women made up 83% of librarians, and of that 83%, well, the overwhelming majority are white. Hard and fast numbers are difficult to come by because the data is dependent on self-reporting to the American Library Association, and not every librarian is a member. Having said that, the data that they have collected shows that between 2009 and 2023, white librarianship never fell below 83%. The numbers for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, on the other hand, 
fluctuate, but they still never go past 10% for any one group. Do you see the problem here? This is a known problem across all types of American libraries, school, public, and academic. And while a number of anti-racism and diversity initiatives have been developed, the issue remains, because this isn't new. American libraries have been dominated by white ladies since the late 19th century, and it's going to take more than a few initiatives to upset the status quo. American libraries are only utopian sanctuaries for a small group of people, which is a feature, not a bug. But honestly, we are all cogs in a very large machine that has been driven by the American government since before the turn of the 19th century. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. So, in the last three episodes, we talked about the potential that libraries represent to so many people. They are seen as places of endless wonder, absolute escape, and infinite possibilities, right? As we all learned on Arthur, having fun isn't hard when you have a library card. And that's great. Honestly, that's how it should be. We should all be able to walk into a library anywhere at any time and know that it's a safe place to be. Except that hasn't always been the case. And for some people, that has never been the case. As I've said before, it's all going to depend on where you fall within the spectrum of gender, race, religion, and class in American society. And that's why I am now going to spend the next three episodes tearing some holes in the idea of libraries as magical places. But I need to know. Are you in or out? Believing that libraries are magical is lovely, but we shouldn't let that obscure the fact that libraries do have a potential to become tools of an authoritarian regime. Of the four series that we'll be discussing, the two that exemplify this idea are Rachel Kane's The Great Library series and Rod Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series. Both of these series take place in an alternate version of Earth where libraries and archives have become a state authority with strict control over knowledge and its dissemination. Each institution believes that they must stand as the arbiters between what is allowed and what should be forbidden. They each start out with benevolent intentions, but they stray very far from that ideal, and they will do whatever it takes to retain their complete authority. Trust. Real quick, before we get into it, I'm going to ask y'all to throw it back a little to episode 5, where we talked about the concept known as the principle of minimal departure. If you'll recall, the principle of minimal departure states that we can accept just about any strange circumstance in a piece of fiction as long as there is a touchstone that we can tie to a real-world image that we hold in our minds. Both of the institutions that we'll be talking about are mostly rooted in what can be considered the real world. 
They don't have endless shifting shelves and mysterious portals into other dimensions. But they do take place on Earths that are not exactly like ours, due to what Salman Rushdie calls hinge moments in history, where everything is in flux and the future is up for grabs. We'll get deeper into alternate histories and their hinge points in the next episode, but I wanted to give y'all a little something to keep in the back of your minds as we go. And now, on with the show. Kane's primary protagonist is a 16-year-old boy named Jess Brightwell, who lives in London in the 2020s in a world where the Library of Alexandria is a thriving 4,000-year-old institution that has insinuated itself into almost every country on Earth. Technically, the library doesn't rule any one country. It merely has treaties with most countries that allow the library to place daughter libraries, giving them access to those countries on a number of levels. It's somewhat similar to how the United States maintains military bases in 85 overseas countries and territories, even though the Cold War is supposedly over. When we first meet Jess, he is a 10-year-old boy being prepped by his father to go on a smuggling run to the center of London. I suppose the obvious questions here would be, why in God's name is a 10-year-old boy involved in smuggling, and what the hell is he smuggling? Those are both fair questions, and the answer to both comes down to one simple thing. Physical, tangible books, which are a highly illegal and highly sought-after commodity in Jess's world. And when I say physical books, I'm talking about books that are handwritten. There are no printed books at all, because the printing press is not a thing in this world, for reasons that will be explained in a future episode. For now, all you need to know is that the idea for the printing press has come up many times and it has been squashed each and every time. Instead, almost everyone, and yes, I do mean pretty much everyone the world over, has a device called a codex, which is essentially an iPad, but instead of running on lithium ion batteries and Wi-Fi, they run on an alchemical substance known as quintessence. I'm not going to do the whole PSA thing for this, but Quintessence, also known as Ether for all my steampunks out there, was considered to be the fifth element by ancient and medieval alchemists. So, in Jess's world, this substance is incredibly valuable and, when channeled through people called Obscurists, powers all of the systems that keep the Library of Alexandria functioning, including the Codex system. Without them, the Codex doesn't work, Jess said. And if the Codex doesn't work, the library falls. Now, the Codex is what connects everyone in the world to the vast holdings of the Great Library, and it works in conjunction with devices called blanks. Blanks contain catalogs of the library's collection, and they are the means by which people load books into their codexes. It's pretty similar to going to your local library's ebook collection, requesting one, and loading it into your e-reader. Only the capital L library pays a hell of a lot more attention to what you're requesting than your local little L library. This way, no books get hurt. All of this has been done by the library ostensibly to protect original works 
from damage or outright destruction. However, this has also allowed the library to censor anything they wish and create a history that bends in their favor, which gives them almost unlimited power. Over the course of several millennia, the library has used this power as a way to insinuate themselves into the governments of the world. By these means shall we further preserve the knowledge we have gathered and hold in trust from ancient times to be preserved for the future of all who come after. The first step in this preservation was to create the doctrine of mirroring, a process which was meant to ensure that the knowledge that the library had in its collection was protected while still allowing free access by creating alchemical copies, which are accessible, of course, through the codex. Then they issued the Doctrine of Ownership, which stated that to further protect and ensure knowledge, the library must own all of the knowledge. If you want to read it, if you want to know about it, the library is where you go, and they are paying attention to everything that you're requesting access to. Here's a thing that has been hanging in my brain probably since high school. I can end a sentence with two. Is that a dangling something? It never sounds right in my head, but I don't know how else to do it without making it a really ridiculous sentence. Grammar is descriptive, not prescriptive. <laughs> and we have moved past the don't end a sentence with a preposition. You know I'm putting that part in here as well. <laughs> And it's not just texts, scrolls, and books that are being kept within the library. We're also talking about inventions, devices that have the capacity to propel human technology forward at a rapid rate, like the mysteriously absent printing press. Whether that progress is positive or negative will depend on how the devices are used. But fallible human beings within the library hierarchy are making the decisions about whether those devices can ever be used, or even whether anyone can know that they exist. Whether the devices exist as schematics roughly sketched in a journal, or are fully functional and ready to work doesn't matter. They're all relegated to the Black Archives, preserved, but hidden. Of course, this is all for the good of humanity. There surely could not be any ulterior motives behind the mass collection of all human knowledge behind heavily protected fortifications, right? The library holds itself to be the keeper of both knowledge and wisdom, but it is not true. So much should never be held in the hands of so few, for it is a natural venal habit of men to hold power and knowledge is the purest form of power. Over the course of the series, Jess and the allies that he makes within the library will become all too aware of how far the library has fallen in its mission to provide knowledge for all. That mission is a slippery slope that can very quickly move from protecting all knowledge to protecting all people from a knowledge that might be dangerous. It is a fine thing to preserve knowledge, but to set the great library above men, above nations, above life? This is not wisdom. Eventually, when we set the importance of an institution like this above all nations and people, we end up with a vast storehouse of knowledge, everything humans could possibly need or want to know, but they aren't allowed to know it. 
The archive is there, but the accessibility has been taken away by the people who have been put in place to safeguard the world because a selectively blinded population is a much more biddable population. They closed our eyes. Our voices have been silenced. Our ears now deaf to the realms of extreme possibilities. Now, having said all that, the Great Library doesn't necessarily want to destroy anything because they do understand the inherent value of these prescribed texts. They just don't want anyone else to see them. And this snag-and-bag behavior isn't exactly out of character for the actual Library of Alexandria, given that they too had very shady collection development practices. Instead, they fell because of bad management decisions, iconoclasts, and some pesky fires, which, by the way, if you're wondering where Caesar is in this version of the library's history, well... For all his faults, the man had put aside his quarrels with Cleopatra and Antony to save the library. In many ways, the modern world owed its whole existence to him. And there, my friends, is a hinge moment. The Bullet Catcher's Daughter series, the, the Gaslit Empire series, is a little different. That's the only one in all of these that isn't an actual library. The world is run by the patent office, but they have an archive of all of the books and the unseemly science that they have locked away. So it's an archive, which is why I keep trying to say libraries and archives, because the, the patent office is a little bit different, but it's still the same idea. What? From Ohio, so we say patent. Yeah, but I listen to the audiobooks and it takes place in England, so it's the patent office. <laughs> you may actually have to say that so the people from Ohio don't make funny faces when they listen to it. Rod Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series takes place in England in the 2000s, but as with Kane's The Great Library series, Duncan's Gaslit Empire is a world that would have been very much like ours until one of those aforementioned hinge moments took place in the early 1800s. A civil war broke out in England, which led to the country being divided into two new nations, the Anglo-Scottish Republic and the Kingdom of England and Southern Wales. Northern Wales, it seems, remained untamed and governed by no one. Shortly after these events, a great accord was signed between France, America, and the Anglo-Scottish Republic that established the International Patent Office. After revolutions in Russia, Germany, and Spain, those countries signed on as well. These affiliated countries would come to be known, rather derisively, as the Gaslit Empire, due to the gaslighting that spread through the civilized world of the accord and the patent office. And before you ask, yes, gaslighting was an actual means of lighting homes and businesses. The term existed long before the meaning that everyone uses now. Going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Anyway, much like the Great Library, the Patent Office doesn't rule any one nation as such, but their laws take precedence over the laws of every nation, and they have one very specific function. To secure the well-being of the common man. This it shall achieve through the separation of seemly science from that which is unseemly. Through the granting or withholding of licenses to produce and sell technology, through the arbitration disputes, and through the execution of whatever punishments are deemed fit. 
Essentially, the patent office believes that they are the only ones who are qualified to decide what science is good and what science is bad, using some nebulous rubric that is known only to them. The patent office will also decide who should be allowed to share their science with the rest of the world. For all my academics out there, the patent office is basically reviewer two, if reviewer two had absolute control over your work. For all my non-academics out there, no one likes reviewer two. Reviewer two symbolizes the peer reviewer who is rude, vague, smug, committed to pet issues, theories, and methodologies, and unwilling to treat the authors as peers. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to anyone yet, but it should because Jeffrey Beale is also basically a reviewer too. He has essentially infantilized scholars and researchers, intentionally or not, to the point that many of them believe that he is the only one who can discern the truth about open access. But this kind of gatekeeping can have unforeseen consequences in the real world and in its fictional counterparts when it stifles progress in order to maintain the status quo. They had ushered in an age in which perfection predominated over innovation, or so the history books claimed. No patent laws curtailed the development of art and culture, yet these two had become quiescent, there being no shocks of war or technology to disturb the equilibrium. The Gaslight Empire is a world at peace, but it is also a world that is devoid of challenge and conflict, which are so often needed to drive the creative endeavors that move a society forward. And while the patent office hasn't outlawed art, the argument could be made that they didn't really need to, right? It's a moot point if no one cares enough to create anything. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, why is she talking about an institution that is clearly not a library? But did I ever say that it wasn't a library? Or at least library adjacent? No, I did not say that. Because y'all... The patent office has built great libraries of books, the only purpose of which is to attempt to divide the seemly from the unseemly, the legal from the illegal. Two centuries of precedent, the wisdom of generations of lawyers and judges. They drew a line, but the harder they labored to sharpen it, the wider it became. It's now a chasm into which the entire gaslit empire might fall and be lost forever. The patent office has books, has devices, and for the moment has control of the world. But how long can that last? Elizabeth Barnabas is the main protagonist in this peaceful but super dull world, and she exists in a rather precarious place. Unlike Jess Brightwell, or the librarians from the books we discussed in previous episodes, Elizabeth has no real desire to do anything other than survive. She's been caught up in a machine that is no longer governed by the principles that first created it, but she isn't working for the greater good, and she definitely does not work for the patent office. She is no accidental vigilante. What she is, is a woman alone, a target of the patent office. She's a target for a number of reasons, but very specifically because she comes into possession of a very particular copy of a rare contraband book known as the Bullet Catcher's Handbook. For good or ill, knowledge has ever threatened the settled order. 
A keg of gunpowder may be matchwood of a sturdy house, but a book can set the world on fire. And how can this particular copy of a book set the world on fire? Well, are y'all familiar with the Anarchist Cookbook? If you don't know the details of this book, it was published in 1971 by William Powell during the height of the Vietnam War. It was a product of a massive countercultural movement, and its legality is still in question over 50 years later. The issue with the Anarchist's Cookbook is that it contains very explicit instructions for engineering explosives, cobbling together rudimentary hacking devices for analog phones, and brewing up your own illicit substances, including LSD. Obviously, law enforcement would have an issue with this kind of publication, and even just having a copy would mark a person out as possibly subversive. I'm going to take a beat here and mention that neither myself nor my dissertation committee are in any way endorsing the use of the anarchist's cookbook. I only mention it for information purposes. While it is similarly subversive, the Bullet Catcher's Handbook is not one book. It is many, many books written by many hands over centuries. Most copies contain the same aphorisms and advice related to the world of stage magicians and conjuring shows. Elizabeth's copy, however, contains blueprints for stage magic devices. If any of these machines were built without the approval of the patent office, their builder would be in great danger. It may seem odd that the patent office would want to hide blueprints for creating devices used in stage magic, but these devices are no different than any other. It's not always about where you use them, but how you use them. The myriad destructive devices you have in this century is remarkable. As one might assume from the handbook's title, the lore around the bullet catch trick is integral to the story, but so is the gun that's used in the trick. In order to maintain their stagnant peace, the patent office has outlawed any gun that is loaded from the breech as opposed to being loaded from the muzzle. For those who don't know guns very well, here's a quick explainer. Muzzle loader guns require that a propellant, like gunpowder, some wadding, like felt, and a projectile be tamped down into the barrel from the front. The propellant is then ignited, usually with some kind of striking mechanism that is built into the gun. This process takes time, from 20 seconds to 2 minutes, depending on the gun. Breech loader guns, on the other hand, only require that the propellant and a bullet be loaded in from the breech end and then fired. No muss, no fuss, and no time wasted when you're blasting away at someone. I feel like the outcome should be obvious, but in case it isn't, the switch from muzzle loaders to breech loaders changes the way war is done. Have y'all ever watched a Revolutionary War period piece where soldiers stand in rows and fire at each other while being handed reloaded guns by other soldiers? It's not a quick process, right? But a breech loader means no more collaborative gun loading, no more rows, no more gentlemanly warfare. Killing enemy soldiers becomes quick and efficient. That alone can change the entire world, and it has, many times over. You only need to read the history of World War I to understand this. The Patent Office clearly understood this very early on, because they rewrote the history books and hid these guns away, much as the Great Library has kept the printing press out of the hands of its people. 
and the Patent Office has attempted to lock up any books that could reveal the truth about the pre-Gaslit Empire world and the technology that can lead to war. But the Bullet Catcher's Handbook is still circulating and sharing tricks, devices, and ideas that could be a problem for the Patent Office and their revised version of history. The Great Library and the Patent Office have both attempted to create idealized worlds for the greater good through strict control of both texts and technology. Their positions as authorities of the state allow them to enact laws that keep these things out of the hands of the public, creating repressive regimes that will even lock people away if they are perceived as a threat to the security of the state. Matter of internal security. The age-old cry of the oppressor. So, how does all of this connect back to American libraries? Well, the current image of the American public library is that of a place where everyone should be free to read what they want to read without fear of politics or repercussions. This idea was written into public library doctrine in 1953 when the ALA issued their freedom to read statement during the height of McCarthyism. The ALA was responding to private groups and public authorities who believed that our national tradition of free expression is no longer valid. Censorship and suppression are needed to counter threats to safety or national security, as well as to avoid the subversion of politics and the corruption of morals. Beginning with the line, the freedom to read is essential to our democracy, the freedom to read statement lays out a very clear position in support of the accessibility of knowledge, including views and expressions that are unorthodox or unpopular with the majority. A more recent version even includes considered dangerous by. But American libraries prior to World War I wrestled with the concept of censorship, largely because librarians saw themselves as being necessary for social stability and the control of controversial information. These, just like today, predominantly white female librarians, having been recently trained in schools created by Melville Dewey, were unleashed upon American libraries like a flood and carried with them the progressivist stance of social and political reform. Librarians believed that they needed to be conservative where it concerns a question of morals and social order, and that they should use their influence in counteracting the revolutionary tendency of the age. Now, to be fair, before we go any further, these newly minted librarians were absolutely tools of white patriarchy and white supremacy. Because, you see, Melville Dewey, well, he was just a terrible human being, y'all. Most people know him as the Dewey Decimal Guy, or even as the creator of the American Library Association, but he was also a racist, anti-Semitic, serial sexual harasser who ended up being tossed out of the organization he created because of his outrages against decency. Touch me again and I'll end you. So, we had a slew of white women who had just survived Melville Dewey's grabby-handed tutelage to become librarians in the age of progressivism. They believed themselves to be a vital part of maintaining social stability, which took many forms, including participation in selective immigrant assimilation and Americanization programs, 
at the same time that they were actively denying access to African Americans. In 1917, a few years into World War I, the American Library Association created the Committee on Mobilization and War Service Plans. This prompted the U.S. Department of War's Commission on Training Camp Activities to bring this committee under their umbrella. Shortly thereafter, libraries across the country began putting a considerable amount of effort into collecting books for soldiers overseas by rallying their library patrons and asking for their help in providing entertainment for the troops. On the surface, this may sound like a noble venture, helping soldiers entrenched in a bloody, brutal war. But this collaboration between the ALA and the U.S. government was also the beginning of the government's infiltration of American libraries. The American government's interference in the daily operations of libraries became very evident during World War II, when libraries were once again imploring their patrons to do their patriotic duty to soldiers overseas. At the same time that libraries were providing this invaluable service, they were also engaging in several forms of censorship, as well as actively spying on their patrons at the behest of governmental institutions. Just another jerk-off assignment where I end up doing the government's dirty work? You see, American libraries have been ordered by the U.S. Secretary of War to remove any and all books related to explosives, ammunition, and cryptology. As if that weren't bad enough, librarians were instructed to snitch on any suspicious patrons that requested information about war-related materials. The real kicker, though, is that the ALA was complicit in allowing the FBI to turn libraries into listening posts and librarians into spies. Fortunately, for the librarians and their patrons, it turns out that librarians make really terrible spies. Even in post-World War America, when librarians began to unclench and the ALA finally realized that maybe allowing the government to poke around at patron affairs was a bad idea, racism was still an everyday fact. Segregation was alive and well across America, and desegregation efforts would be drawn out and difficult for many American libraries. Some libraries desegregated quickly and quietly and went on about their business. Some chose to make a production of desegregation by shifting furniture in ways that would make it difficult for anyone to get too close to each other, white or black. And some libraries chose to close completely rather than allow African Americans through the doors. Obviously, for some libraries and librarians, the freedom to read was a privilege and not actually a right. Because if you go back in and read it through, you'll see that the statement does not mention who has the freedom to read. The generalized descriptor of people leaves it up to the librarians in charge to decide who counts as people. We all know how well that goes. Over the next few decades, as attitudes about civil rights began to evolve, libraries were no longer able to creatively interpret the basic fundamentals of the freedom to read statement. And then 9-11 happened prompting a dramatic change in how the American government attempted to keep tabs on its citizens. The FBI and other agencies were once again keen to inject sub rosa investigations into American libraries. The Patriot Act, passed shortly after the September 11th attacks, 
allowed the government to secretly request and obtain library records for large numbers of individuals without any reason to believe they were involved in illegal activity. Surrender your women and intellectuals! The problem with this, outside of the fact that Americans were not being told about these investigations, is that modern American librarians are taught from their very first days in library school that a patron's right to privacy should always be upheld. In the wake of 9-11 and the institution of the Patriot Act, this need to protect patron privacy became even more important. So we ended up with a situation where the law came into direct conflict with the fundamental beliefs of most American librarians. But the librarians weren't going to just up and roll over. They decided that if the government wanted in, they were going to have to provide warrants first. Unfortunately for the FBI and their governmental brethren, these warrants were not being executed quickly enough or often enough, and they began to feel stymied by American librarians that refused to give up the goods. This frustration became public knowledge in 2005, when internal FBI emails were released, including the gem that would incite the radical militant librarian meme. In the email, the sender stated that the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, or OIPR, should be embarrassed that the FBI has used this valuable tool to fight terrorism exactly zero times. The inability of FBI investigators to use this seemingly effective tool has had a direct and clearly adverse impact on our terrorism cases. While radical militant librarians kick us around, true terrorists benefit from OIPR's failure to let us use the tools given to us. Clearly, American librarians were not playing around. What should have been a quiet internal complaint became a very broad public knowledge and helped pave the way for a renewed campaign to protect privacy in libraries. I know what it's like to lose. I feel so desperately that you're right. Yet to fail. What do you think about when I say, what comes to mind when I say the word library? Um, for me, it's very specific. It's the Temple Public Library in Temple, Texas. It, back then, it was not the bank building. It was the old library that was originally built as a library. And it was cool and quiet and subdued lighting. And there were librarians walking around who wouldn't be pushy, but if you asked them, they would get you the information you wanted. And you could ask for anything. Anything! And that was amazing. And my my pop took me there almost every weekend. And it was one of the best parts of my childhood. I also think of his library because he was a librarian at the high school. And he always had dioramas in the front windows and in the hallway of banned books. And that's where I fell in love with books that people didn't want me to read. That's what I think of. Of course, American libraries are still facing challenges as we speak.
Except that this time, most of the challenges seem to be coming from a small minority of people who want the library to be an oppressive arm of the state, including groups like Moms for Liberty. Moms for Liberty was recently named an extremist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center due to their virulent campaigns to ban books that they personally find objectionable. Apparently, in a wild misunderstanding of the word liberty, they really want the government to come in and crack down on the knowledge that librarians are just giving away. But this time, the books in question aren't about bombs or espionage. They're simply books that these moms disagree with. But if you ask any of these people, they'll tell you that controlling books is the only way to protect the public from dangerous ideas. They will insist that this needs to be done for the good of the children, while discounting the fact that what they're doing is essentially the same kind of slippery slope that led to the situations that the Great Library and the Patent Office find themselves in. We'll have a nice long conversation about the rhetoric that these institutions use to justify their actions in the next episode, and we'll also talk about the very real-world analogs that have utilized the same controlling rhetoric in order to protect the people. Of course, as always, I don't want to poop on the very simple idea that speculative fiction like this can exist as nothing more than an escape. But if we can also take something away from that about the nature of libraries and their potential as tools for an authoritarian takeover, that's not a bad thing. Because honestly, is life imitating art or is art really just imitating life? We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the results. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references in the show notes or by visiting anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Blue Sky at Archive Anxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Copt. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busel, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including Matt and G-Love, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Theo, Bree, Woody, Adrian, Jack, Thax, and Selena, and a super special thank you to my pinch hitters, Matt and Shannon, who stepped up to help me out at the last minute. I'd also like to thank Harvest House for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me next time as we continue our investigation into libraries and governmental control with Episode 8, The Library as State Authority, Part 2.